It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? One of the most incredible survival stories from World War II involves a B-17 ball turret gunner, Alan McGee. The young airman survived a 22,000-foot fall without a parachute from his damaged flying fortress. While on a mission January 3, 1943, over Laurent, France, McGee was wounded by anti-aircraft flak, and he discovered that his parachute had a large hole in the middle. He removed his parachute and was looking for another one when his aircraft was hit again and he was knocked unconscious and blown out of the plane. The next thing he knew, McGee awoke terrified to find himself falling freefall helplessly through the sky. He prayed and he asked God to save his life. He said, I don't wish to die because I know nothing of life. Then he lost consciousness again. Moments later, his body crashed through the glass roof of the St. Nazaree Railroad Station and he was tangled in the steel girders and cables. The German soldiers that came to the scene were astonished to find him badly injured, but still alive. His arm was nearly torn off. He had badly damaged teeth, legs, knees, and ankles. He was treated well by skilled German doctors and made a near full recovery at his POW camp. McGee went on to live to 84 years of age. He said, I don't know how I got here, but I'm here thanks to God. Now that's an amazing story, Pastor Ross. I've heard of some people uh, falling long distances, and I think uh, I think the record is 23,000 feet by a Russian soldier who kind of landed on a hillside in the snow. But uh, for this man to land in France and go through the roof of a building and live is pretty astonishing. That is. That would seem to be definitely an answer to prayer. <laughs> Here he prays as he's falling through the air. Next thing he knows, he's still alive. And it's uh, just remarkable to fall through glass and cable and wiring and everything else that was used in that roof or that train station and still to survive and, and have a full recovery. But the sad part of the story is he survives, but he gets taken to a prisoner of war camp where he's there for the rest of the war, but he does recover. Yes. And it seems like his faith in God really uh, was revealed there in, in trusting in God through that experience. You know, we do have a book, Pastor Doug, that talks about uh, faith in difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's the story of another POW uh, experience where somebody was in a prison of war camp, but who had incredible faith in God mm -hmm. and how God answered this person's prayer. It's called Death Watch in Siberia. And this is our free offer to anyone who would like to get it. All you have to do is just call and ask. It's our free gift today, Death Watch in Siberia. If you're outside of North America and you are watching this program, just go to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org or .com, and you'll be able to read the book right there online. Mm -hmm. Well, Pastor Doug, before we go to the phone lines, as we always do, let's start with prayer. Mm -hmm. Amen. Dear Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to once again open up your word and, and study. We thank you for uh, the many who are listening and those who are 
going to be calling in with their Bible questions. So Lord, as we study, we pray that your spirit would lead us into a, a fuller and deeper understanding of the Bible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, it's good to be able to be doing Bible Answers Live again in person. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we told our listeners that we were going to do a special Bible prophecy series. Uh, actually, it was four weeks in all, and that we're doing that on Sunday evenings. Mm-hmm. It's called Panorama of Prophecy. For anyone who's missed that program or would like to go back and see it, it is available at the website, just panoramaofprophecy.com. I think you can also access it through the Amazing Facts website. But as always, it's good to be back taking Bible questions. That's right. For those of you who are listening, if you have a Bible question, our phone lines are open. This is a good time to pick up your phone and give us a call. The number is 800-463-7297. And that will bring you right here into the studio. And they can also watch on the uh, Amazing Facts Facebook page. If you go to Facebook, which is the Amazing Facts Facebook page, or the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, you can see what's happening here in the studio, as well as... Uh, Amazing Facts Television, better known as AFTV. So we invite you to tune in, tell your friends we are live tonight, and uh, I think we're going to do our best to answer some Bible questions. Okay, we're ready to go to the phone lines. Our first call of this evening is Chad listening in Canada. Chad, you on the air. Hey, pastors, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you for uh, making this available. It's a great thing that you guys are doing. And your question tonight. Yes, so some Christian denominations believe that um, the prophecy of the mark of the beast was fulfilled by Emperor Nero. What um, proof from the Bible or from history do we have to prove that that prophecy has not been fulfilled and Nero did not fulfill it? Okay, good question. There are three principal views when it comes to interpreting prophecy and revelation in particular. They've got the preterist view. Preterist, you can see in the title there is the word pre. They believe that um, virtually all of revelation was fulfilled by 100 AD. And um, they think Nero was the Antichrist. And they talk about that, uh, the woman wearing the, the purple and the scarlet. Those were also the Roman Caesars wore those colors. And so uh, there's that group. Uh, then you've got what you call the historist view, and that's probably where Pastor Ross and I fall. That means revelation and prophecy is covering a panorama of history. Uh, revelation in particular tells us that, you know, these prophecies begin with John getting the revelation. He said the time is at hand, and it continues on to the second coming. Well, second coming doesn't happen yet. And so uh, it's covering the history of God's people, not just for the first hundred years, but it's talking about the history of God's people all the way from the time of John, Jesus' first coming, to his second, I mean, indeed beyond that, to heaven. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the futurist view, and they typically take Revelation chapter 4, and they say everything from chapter 4 on, where they hear the voice of a trumpet, they say that's the resurrection trumpet, and that's dealing with um, events that are after the this secret rapture. So those are the three views. There's very few people, actually, um, I mean, when you look at percentages, very few Christians believe the preterist view because uh, it just doesn't match up with Revelation 12, 13, 17, so many other prophecies. It, you can't squash them in and say the Caesars of Rome fulfilled all of that. You know, Pastor, it's also interesting the history of the preterist view and the futurist view 
prior to those different views, they, they weren't uh, something that was believed in the early days of the Christian church. But during the time of the Reformation, mm-hmm. a number of the reformers were using, using the historist interpretation of Bible prophecy, and they were identifying uh, different political powers and religious powers. Of course, the papacy was also being identified based on a historicist interpretation of Revelation. In response to the Reformation, we have what we call the Counter-Reformation, that uh, had the full support of the uh, the papacy at the time, and they promoted a different interpretation of Revelation, moved the spotlight away from them, and there were actually two views that was officially endorsed by the church, mm-hmm. the preterist view and the futurist view, which are directly opposite in the yeah. interpretation, but they were uh, both adopted in, in different areas, um, again, just to move the focus away from the historist interpretation, but most Protestant churches held to the historist view until oh, about 150 years ago, or even less, where we began to see some yeah. futuristic interpretations creep into main Protestant it churches. Really, the futurist view really became popular in the 70s and the 80s with uh, some books by Hal Lindsey mm-hmm. that used the Schofield Bible. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Those views actually were, uh, what's the word? They were manufactured. Yeah, those those prophetic views were manufactured by uh, Roman Catholic scholars, Jesuit scholars, and even though they're opposite views. <laughs> right. Well, we do have a study guide. Somebody might be wondering a little bit more about what does the Bible mean when it talks about the mark of the beast there in Revelation chapter 13. We have a study guide that's actually called the mark of the beast. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who's wanting to know. Incidentally, this is an important truth because the Bible tells us in the last days there's going to be two groups. Those who have the seal of God those who have the mark of the beast. So we want to know what the seal is. We want to know what the mark is. Call and ask for it. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for the Amazing Facts Study Guide. It's called The Mark of the Beast. And we'll be happy to get it in the mail and send it to you if you're in North America. Otherwise, just visit the Amazing Facts website, amazingfacts.org. Next okay. caller that we have, we've got uh, Refugio listening in Texas. Refugio, welcome to the program. Uh, yes, sir. How's it going? God bless you Thank you. Good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. My question is the vaccinations. It's it, you know, right to think if you believe in, in, in God and Jesus. The, yeah, well, let's talk about that for just a second. Now, you're not going to find any reference to vaccines in the Bible. Um, you know, the Bible does talk about medicine. And, uh, you know, there, there are some good things about medicine. I think it's both in... Uh, Revelation in Ezekiel, it talks about the trees, um, the trees by the river, their fruit was good and their leaves were for medicine. And then the Bible tells us a happy heart does good like a medicine, you know. So there were some medicines that had good outcomes. Uh, they weren't using vaccination in the Bible. Uh, I don't think that there's any moral problem with vaccination that, you know, that's been in the news a lot lately, but, you know, up until uh, last year, you know, People got smallpox and polio and all different kinds of vaccinations, and they they didn't have any problem with that. Um, I can understand why a lot of people might have issues with the government forcing you to do something, that you take something in your body. At least in America, that's kind of atypical. You know, usually um, your person's health issues are very personal and private, and you're not really compelled or penalized for not taking some medicine. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of views on that, but you're not going to find the word vaccination or vaccine in the Bible. But there's certainly no there's no um, sin against medicine, uh, the right kind. You don't want to be addicted to any kind of drug, though. 
You know, we do have a study guide that talks about God's free health plan. And if ever there's a time for us to be healthy, it seems it would be now. There's all kinds of diseases out there. Now, of course, some of it, like we just talking about this this virus, Pastor Doug, it's, it's, it's not always dependent upon how healthy you are. Healthy people get sick, and they can get very sick with this virus. And so that is something that one needs mm-hmm. to carefully consider their situation, talk to their health care provider, and that kind of thing. But there are some biblical principles that if we follow, it's going to help us strengthen our immune system and generally make us healthier people. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about health. It's called God's Free Health Plan. It's one of our amazing fact study mm-hmm. guides, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And again, just ask for the amazing fact study guide. It's called God's free health plan. And we'll get that in the mail and send it to you. Some good Bible principles dealing with health. Thanks for your call. We've got uh, Terry listening from Maryland. Terry, welcome to the program. Uh, Hi. Good evening to Pastor Ross and Pastor Bachelor. Um, I had a question. Um, I was married before and we were divorced um, because my husband had committed adultery. And that was back in 1999. And since then, um, the last, I'd say, few years, I've been dating someone. And we were talking about getting married. And a pastor uh, refused to marry us because he said, because I was married before, that I was never to get married again, that that was biblical. And so I'm kind of at a loss. So I just can never marry again. Well, let's find out what the Bible says. Uh, And before I even get to the scriptures here in front of me, uh, we have a book. This is Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage is a book I wrote because, um, well, for one thing, I kind of lived through it in that my mother and father were both married, my mom four times, my dad five times, and I kind of grew up with a lot of the baggage surrounding that. And, um, And I just see in pastoring, a lot of people struggle with these issues. And sometimes, you know, the answers are not cut and dry. But let's find out what does Jesus say. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, he says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, what, Paul, uh, what Jesus is saying there, Paul also addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, what Jesus is saying here is that um, a person who has been divorced with biblical grounds, they can remarry. But if you marry someone who is divorced without biblical grounds, you're encouraging adultery. So from your scenario that you shared, it sounds like your husband was unfaithful, he violated the marriage vows, then you are free to remarry. Uh, there's one other example where Paul talks about marriage and divorce, and that's in the event that, you know, there's two pagans out there. They don't believe in God. They don't know about Jesus. One of them converts and becomes a Christian. The unbeliever says, I'm leaving you. Does that mean that maybe she's a young mother? Does that mean she can never marry again? Paul said, no, in such cases, she's free. Do all you can to save your marriage. But, um, if, you know, if it can't be saved, if they're uh, bound and determined to leave you because of your faith, well, then you're free, meaning free to remarry. Uh, so, and, you know, it's in marriage and divorce, divorce, it's not the unpardonable sin. You look at Abraham, God actually at one point said, you need to put away Hagar. He said, oh, you need to divorce her. Now, God hates it because it causes all kinds of heartache. 
But uh, God doesn't hate people. He hates sin. And he hates the consequences of sin. So, you, you know, you should talk to a pastor. If a pastor is saying that uh, if, if you were divorced and you have biblical grounds, you can't remarry, I'd get another pastor's opinion. You know, they say sometimes get another doctor's opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it, it might be good to uh, take your Bible and show these verses to the pastor and say, now, how do I understand this? You know, Terry, I think you'd really enjoy that book. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And it's got all the scriptures in there and explains you know, the teachings uh, from the Bible on that, we'll be happy to send that to you or anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for the book. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. If you're outside of North America, you can go to the Amazing Facts website and read the book. I think you can just type it in the search bar there and it should come up. Thank you for your call. We've got uh, Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to the program. My question, um, I, I... As I read through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, I noticed that whenever Jesus, in whatever, even in his pre-incarnate form, uh, when he was here on earth, um, he was accompanied by well, two angels, it seems, like almost every time. So when he visited Abraham, there were two angels with him. Mm-hmm. Um, at the resurrection, there were two angels sitting on his grave, um, besides the one that was outside, but there was... Two, there were two angels, one at the foot and one at the head. And then at his ascension, there were two angels there as well. So I just wanted to know, do you think there's any biblical or spiritual significance to that? Just like how there's the cherubim on either side of the the ark, you know, the, on the mercy seat of the ark. Do you think that's maybe that could represent something like that? Or, or Yeah, do you yeah I think you're on to something. That are always there? Yeah. yeah, you know, in the Bible, it tells us in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, those two angels were there to testify of not only his his uh, ascension, but that he would come again. And they said, this same Jesus will come again. At the resurrection, there were two angels there to testify to the women that he was alive. Don't look for the living among the dead. He's alive. And as you said, there were two angels that went into Sodom to testify that they had you know, gone too far in their wickedness. They had firsthand experience. And so, you know, sometimes the Lord sent the disciples out two by two because they could support each other. And also there was the, the uh, testimony of at least two or three witnesses. There are times where there may have been one angel. I think it says one angel came to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't build a doctrine over there was always two angels that were with Jesus. But... Um, yeah, I think that there's something to be said for the number two representing, you know, a, a stronger testimony. And of course, in the book of Revelation, we have uh, a passage in Revelation 11 that talks about the two witnesses. And we understand that to be the law and the prophets or the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that's also referred to as the two witnesses. And that's the two angels are right above the two tables of the testimony. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In heaven. So you got, uh, there's another example. That's a parallel. That. Good question. Thanks. We've got uh, Grace calling from Texas. Grace, welcome to the program. My question is, could there be another prophet, prophetess like Ellen White that would write books and be utilized by God, even though they're weak um, and ill like Ellen White was? Yeah, you know, the Bible tells us in the last days that uh, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Prophecy is one of the gifts of the church. And uh, no, I don't think anything should be added to scripture. 
but the gifts of the Spirit have not stopped with uh, the death of the Apostle John. You know, God still has the gifts of the Spirit. You find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And um, prophecy is one of those gifts. And it tells us that I'll pour out my Spirit on your sons and your daughters. So you have in the Bible both men and women that had the gift of prophecy. And you know, Pastor Doug, it's interesting. We got, uh, if you look in Scripture, we find different um, types, you might say, of prophets. They're all inspired and they have a message from God. But you have some prophets who you might consider almost career prophets, like mm -hmm. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and others, Moses, that God's used or spoke through over the length of, of their life or for a very long time. But then we also have examples where the Spirit of the Lord will come upon an individual and they will give a specific message for a situation at a specific time. And that's the last you hear of them mm -hmm. as being uh, doing the work of a prophet. Even in the New Testament, we have examples of people who were prophesying for specific situations, but you wouldn't consider them as sort of a career prophet. Yeah. So as we near the end of time, uh, it's quite possible based on that verse that there will be the manifestation of the gift of prophecy to help guide the church and individuals in different situations. But I don't know if we have enough time left uh, here on the earth for a so-called career prophet, you might say, somebody like of the caliber that is being used as a prophet over many, many years. Well, you know, I, and I've wondered this myself. Uh, there's that verse there that says, uh, uh, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Jesus tells us John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he said, John, Elijah has come and Elijah will come. Mm -hmm. And so we wonder if, you know, near the end of time, that someone will come with the spirit and power of Elijah to try to get the world ready again for the second coming, like John the Baptist got the world ready for the first coming. So they may, you know, Elijah appears out of nowhere. You can't really call, I guess you could call Elijah a career prophet, but from the time his first prophecy till he goes to heaven, it's not the same amount of time as Elisha right. or Jeremiah. That's you know, true. it's a short time. Mm -hmm. so, Interesting. Yeah. Don't and know. of course, in Revelation chapter 7 you have a whole army you might say of people who are doing the work of proclaiming yeah proclaiming God's last message in the spirit and the power of Elijah so some interesting parallels great great question there Grace we've got Kevin listening from um, California Kevin welcome to the program good evening pastor so very good to talk to you I wish you both well thank you thanks for calling I see a growing trend with many pastors uh, in many different churches teaching that the term sons of God in the Bible refers to angels. Um, we, we know that is not true. Um, I am just astounded how rapidly this teaching is growing. We know that sons of God are the line of Seth, daughters of men are the line of Cain. We know in Hebrews 1.5, God says, to which of the angels did I ever call son? To which of the angels did I ever say I am your father? And then they argue with the verse how uh, the sons of God shouted with joy and the stars sang. In Job, yeah. Well, we, we, yeah, we know that the stars are the angels because Lucifer drew a third of the stars with him. Sons of God are still not angels. Um we probably can assume safely that sons of God were the atoms of the other worlds that we can no longer see. Kevin, like you're going to put no this longer. in. You're going to put it into a question. Well, my question is, how do we combat this false teaching? Well, you're doing it. You just, you know, you combat the falsehood with the truth. 
And, uh, you know, you're absolutely correct. The, the um, people read in Genesis chapter 6, and some listeners might wonder, what, what is Kevin referring to? In Genesis chapter 6, where it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all they chose. Some think that they are angels. Some think they're aliens. Some think they're fallen angels. And uh, then th- that you get these uh, giant-like creatures from that. There have been movies to that effect. But uh, they're just they're making something out of nothing. It's talking about the descendants of Seth, the children of God, intermarrying with the descendants of Cain. And then you've got that verse in First uh, John chapter 3 where it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called sons of God. So you're on the right track, Kevin, that, uh, and the way you deal with it is just get the truth out there. Well, you know, I think part of the reason for why there's so much confusion is there, there are a few paraphrases of the Bible that actually use That's right. the phrase, instead of translating sons of God, I'm thinking of the Living Bible for one, that actually says angels saw the daughters of men and took unto them wives and the giants were born into the earth. So I think that's maybe where some of this comes from, where this You're false idea right. of, of these sons of God being angels. All right, very good. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, Pastor Doug, I'm looking at the clock. I'm wondering, do we have time to take one more caller or should we wait until right after the break? I'm looking here. I, I think that probably we're going to have to wait until after the break. Hey, am I mistaken or is, did Hanukkah begin? Happy Hanukkah. I think it did my aunt, my Jewish aunt. She texted she you. She told me happy Hanukkah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am not a very good Jew. I should know this. <laughs> but um, yeah, we want to encourage people. If you did not see the Panorama of Prophecy series that we recorded last month, there were 25 presentations. The presentations are about one hour. If you also include the Bible answer time and then the questions, you got 90 minutes. But um, we uh, we went through some of the major prophecies in Revelation, and you can anyone can go there. You just go to panoramaofprophecy.com, and they can watch the presentations that are there. Great series. We had some good feedback. People watching from literally around the world, Pastor Doug. People in South Africa, people in Australia, Papua New Guinea. We got a message from somebody or several people watching Papua New Guinea. Yeah. So really, an international audience participating in the Panorama of Prophecy. Uh, great comments, great content. There's actually lessons that go along with the series. Mm-hmm. That a person can watch the program and you can fill in the different Bible verses as you go through the different teachings. So that way we can get reinforced truth. And we, we use both the lessons and the videos. Yeah, you'll get the most out of the program if you also order the lessons, fill them out. And maybe you want to do Bible studies in your home with someone. Great way to start is use the Panorama of Prophecy videos, get the corresponding lessons, and take your friends through those studies. I promise it'll change their lives. Just got the foundational teachings of the Bible. All right, we've got some more Bible questions coming, and you'd like to still call in? There's time. We'll be back. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Amazing Facts offers some of the best Christian resources for all ages. We hope our products will enrich your life and your walk with the Lord. In the Blueprint Bible Lessons, you'll uncover the history of good versus evil and learn how this ages-old conflict makes sense of our world and your life. Get yours today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com.
Throughout recorded history, tales of ghosts and spirits can be found in folklore in nearly every country and culture. Egyptians built pyramids to help guide the spirits of their leaders. Rome sanctioned holidays to honor and appease the spirits of their dead. Even the Bible tells of a king that used a witch to contact the spirit of a deceased prophet. Today, ancient folklore of spirits and apparitions have gone from mere superstitions to mainstream entertainment and reality. Scientific organizations investigate stories of hauntings and sightings, trying to prove once and for all the existence of ghosts. Even with all the newfound technology and centuries of stories all over the world, there is still no clear-cut answer. So how do we know what's true? Why do these stories persist? Does it even matter? We invite you to look inside and find out for yourself. Visit ghosttruth.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you tuned in along the way, this is a live international interactive Bible study. We invite you to call in with your questions. It is a free phone call. That number is 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. You can also watch what's happening here in the studio on Amazing Facts Television, on the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, or the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And we're going to try and cover as many questions as we can. I am Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross, and we're going to go to our next caller. Tay Vision is listening from Illinois. Tay Vision, welcome to the program. My question is, is uh, that I've been watching a lot of, um, I've been basically following the health industry a lot lately. Mm-hmm. And um, and essentially, this is in like regards to like like basically what it's free to eat. Like I know like clean and unclean meat. But um, I'm not saying I have an eating problem, but I, you know, like to eat. But um, uh, my question is, is that is it okay for us to eat fast food even if it's, you know, being clean? Yeah, well, you know, you're not going to find, there's probably no scripture that's going to forbid eating at a fast food restaurant. I guess you could call Subway fast food uh, because you can get it pretty fast. Um. I, I eat there quite a bit, but you can eat a pretty healthy meal there. So um, I used to travel with a singing group, and they sometimes were on the road, and the only thing they could do is stop at fast food to keep on going down the road. And uh, But I was pretty health conscious, and I'd have to really scramble. I'd order a veggie Whopper or get a McDonald's salad 
you have to struggle a little more to get stuff that's uh, not going to kill you off. <laughs> so there's no <laughs> sin to eating fast food. Just wherever you go, you want to try and eat what's good for Do you. Do the best you can. I yeah. went to Kentucky Fried Chicken and ate some mashed potatoes that I think saved me once. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. no, I, we don't encourage, you know, if you do a lot of that, typically fast food, uh, I guess someone did a, a special called Supersize Me, where they just ate at McDonald's for, I forget, a month or something, nearly nearly killed them. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, you don't want to do that very often because it's usually got a lot of calories and a lot of salt and not the best. You know, again, we have the study guide talking about God's free health plan. What does the Bible say about our bodies and how we can take care of them? We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number for that is just 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called God's Free Health Plan. And again, Bible principles for living a longer, healthier, happier life. And Thank you blessed. for your question, Tavian. We've got Randy listening in Indiana. Randy, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate it, pastors. Um, mm. My question centers around the Ten Commandments and Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, the reason I'm asking this question is we know in Colossians 1.16 that all things invisible and visible were created through Jesus Christ. So my question is, was it God the Father or God the Son who wrote the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? Well, you're giving the answer, not only in Colossians, but in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says, all things that were made were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And, you know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but fulfill. Well, he wouldn't destroy him because he wrote them. That finger that wrote in the temple dust when that woman was caught in adultery is the same finger, I believe, that wrote the Ten Commandments. I believe God the Father was there with the Son declaring his law. That's why no man could even go up into the glory and, and see what was happening. Yeah, and throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament, we find God being the go-between between the Father and Israel. And it was Christ that would have to appear sometimes as the angel of the Lord or the mm -hmm. messenger of the Lord. The angel that appeared actually was Christ who appeared to Joshua called the angel of the Lord, the messenger. So yes, Jesus is the one that's communicating with God's people, revealing the Father. Mm -hmm. Jesus said he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so we find that principle throughout the Bible. Yep. So you're on the right track, Randy. I think that was uh, God the Son, Jesus, who was... Um, primarily involved in delivering the law to his people. All right, we've got Sarah listening from uh, Arizona. Sarah, welcome to the program. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it forbids wearing of jewelry, like necklaces, wedding rings, and things like that? Like, I grew up not wearing that stuff, but yeah. I'm having problems, like, showing where it says not to wear that stuff. All right, good question. Uh, some of our listeners might be surprised to know that... Uh, Early Protestants, uh, you know, whether our church, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, they sh frowned on wearing any jewelry. They felt that it was uh, based on the scriptures. Well, a few scriptures I'll give you. One is where Peter says that uh, the godly women of old um, adorned the inside. Let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. And Paul says that the women adorned themselves in modest apparel, not with gold and pearls and costly array. And when the children of Israel made the golden calf, and I'm just giving you off the top of my head some of these verses that you're asking about, Sarah. When the children of Israel um, made the golden calf, 
they, it was made out of their jewelry and they made a God out of it. And, um, and then when Jacob came to meet with the Lord, um, it says that uh, you know they buried their jewelry and they went to kind of renew their covenant to the Lord. When God met with the children of Israel after the golden calf, he said, break off your ornaments that I can know what to do with you. Now I want to make a claim, a clear, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that wore jewelry. But uh, if you look at the Bible, I think that um, you know God is telling his people that he's not calling us to be investing in um, wearing money, to being ostentatious. A few years ago, a lot of televangelists got into trouble, them and their wives. And someone even wrote a song that said, would Jesus wear a Rolex? And, you know, a lot of these, uh, they, these evangelists, you know, they were just bedecked with jewelry and they were asking everyone to send their money. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it just didn't send the right message. You know, I think the verses you're referring to, at least the ones in the New Testament there, First Peter chapter 3, from verse 3 to 6, mm-hmm. uh, you have Peter talking about it, and then you have Paul in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, and he's also referring to that. You see, the Bible principle when it comes to dress for the Christian is neat, simplicity. Uh, we, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves Modesty, yeah. by wearing something old-fashioned or something brand new in fashion. <laughs> we don't want to be in the foreground or in the back when it comes to fashion, but we want to be modest and uh, allow the character to shine through. Yeah. And, you know, we've actually had a book that talks about what the Bible says about uh, modesty and, and uh, I think there's one called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? That's mm-hmm. got all these verses in there. That's right. If you'd like to get that book, anyone who would like it, Sarah and others, just call 800-463-7297. Actually, that's the number if you have a Bible question, the one you want to call for the free offer, 800-835-6747. That's the number. As for the book, it's called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? And we're happy to send it to anyone in North America. You can also read that online at the Amazing Facts website. We've got Robert listening in North Carolina. Robert, welcome to the program. Okay, so like a long while back when I was younger, I'm in my 40s now, but when I was younger, a youth pastor said something like uh, the Hebrew word for hand meant the whole arm, like from fingertip to shoulder. I thought that was a strangest thing I ever heard, and that stuck with me all this time. And my question is, uh, was he right? Oh, well, yes and no. Uh, The Hebrew word for hand does include the wrist and the forearm, it doesn't go to the shoulder. And typically, uh, I think people use that argument to say when Jesus' hands were pierced, uh, a number of Christian scholars believe that means that he actually, he could have got the nails in his wrists. It definitely doesn't include your shoulder. Um, that you know, You're not dealing with your hand. So the hand was uh, often thought of in the Hebrew mind of you know, the forearm and the hands. But typically, it's talking about the hand part where your fingers are. But it might include your forearm, and there's some examples where it's translated that way. So that's why I said you're partly right and partly wrong. Um, Although there are two different words, Pastor Doug, if you look in the Hebrew or in the Greek, mm-hmm. forehand and arm. Right. We have reference in the Old Testament where it talks about saved by God's righteous right arm. And it's talking about the arm. It's the talking arm. about the hand, yes. And then there's other verses that clearly refer to the hand. That's right. So there is a, dis- a different a word used there in the original languages. Yeah, and then Greek is a whole different story. It's a different language. So, uh, you know, we think that Jesus uh, got pierced in his hands. I did a whole study on this because we did a video where Jesus was showing his hands to someone after the crucifixion. We had to figure out where do you put the nails? And um, it's uh, 
definite that in Roman history that they did have the nails actually go in the hands or the wrists. So it could be both. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Robert. We've got uh, Terrence listening also in North Carolina. Terrence, you're on, you on the air. Yeah. Hey, John. How are you? Good, good. Good. I got a question for you. Um, I was listening to you the other night, and somebody did ask the same question I'm asking now, is if we can uh, pray directly to Jesus. I I do quite frequently, and your answer the other night was, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you said it was on a couple of different verses in the Bible, you could pray directly to Jesus. But I, I ask for Jesus' blessings all the time. I pray to Jesus and God both. So I was looking for a little uh, more clarity on that. All right. Great question. Pass it out. Yeah. You, uh, there's nothing wrong with praying directly to Jesus. Uh, there are a couple of verses that uh, you find that the last prayer in the Bible says, even, come, even so come Lord Jesus. That's a prayer directed to Jesus. When Stephen was being stoned, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But typically, Jesus encourages us to pray to the Father through him. But if you're praying to Jesus, he's called our advocate. He's called our intercessor. And so nothing wrong with talking to your defense attorney to uh, direct uh, a message to the, the judge, so to speak. So um, most of the time in the Bible, Christ said, you know, pray to the Father, our fa pray in this manner, our Father, and we do it in the name of his Son. And it's not uncommon, even with children, when we teach our kids to pray and they're little, usually we'll begin with the phrase, dear Jesus. Uh, as part of the prayer. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It makes it personal, yeah. It does. It makes it personal. Although, uh, as Pastor Doug mentioned, um, the example that we find in Scripture, for the most part, is you're praying to God the Father in the name of Jesus, asking for the intercession of the Holy Spirit to help guide your mind. Mm -hmm. You're usually asking for the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then, we have no example that I know of, Pastor Doug, with somebody who's praying specifically to the Holy Spirit. But we do have an example of people praying, as mentioned, Stephen, to Christ, or to Jesus, and then many examples of people praying to, to God, to the Father. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Well, you know, we do have a book. It's called Teach Us to Pray, mm -hmm. and it deals with the subject of prayer. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number for that is 800-835-6747. And again, just call and ask. The book is called Teach Us to Pray. And if you'd like to have a deeper a prayer life, you will be blessed by reading that book. Next caller that we have is uh, Walter listening in Alaska. Walter, welcome to the program. Hi, pastors. Blessings to you. Thank you. Hey, my question my question is about Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And I know uh, in the Greek it uses the word pharmakia linked in there. And how does that uh, re involve our big pharma of today and some of these medicines such as the vaccine? Well, let, let me read this for our friends that are listening. Galatians chapter 5, I'll read verse, uh, oh, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. And I think that word sorcery is pharmakia. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I've told you in time past, that those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so Paul is saying everything in that list is not good. And the word sorcery, uh, pharmakia, they used to make potions and uh, drugs that would cause hallucinations. 
And supposedly, you know, when I was a teenager, a lot of the young people back then during the Beatles era, we were taking LSD and, and uh, mushrooms and hallucinogenics, they, we called them, to give us a spiritual experience. It was our argument anyway. Well, that's not new. That was happening all the way back in the time of Paul in witchcraft. They often resorted to drugs that would put them in a, in a trance. And when I lived on the Navajo reservation, they would go and have a, uh, we could call them a powwow, but they'd get together and they'd have a spiritual ceremony and they'd take peyote and they'd go into a trance and hope that God would give them messages. But, you know, we know now these are, this is just, um, they're hallucinations and delusions. I don't think this is talking where it says pharmacia there. I don't think it's talking about using justified pharmaceuticals for some condition. And, you know, it's, it's certainly hard to make an argument that this is talking about, uh, you know, one particular vaccine. I think Paul is talking about just the way that sorcery was being used and they used drugs in their sorcery. Now, there may be problems. It's not really a Bible question. There may be problems in our culture with the power of big pharmaceutical companies. You know, I, I think everyone knows that uh, there are lobbyists paid in Washington and there's a lot of money that's connected with those industries. I'm thankful for a lot of the good cures that have been developed. Uh, I'm sure there's probably where there's a lot of money, there's a little bit of intrigue involved. But uh, it's not really a Bible issue there. You know, Pastor Doug, I'm just thinking some of these um, pagan countries or pagan uh, traditions and tribes, they would have the witch doctor who would serve both as the doctor as well as the one who was to communicate with the gods. Yeah. So there's always been uh, some kind of connection between healing the medicine men. and sort of the priest yeah. or that type of thing. And of course, that was way back even in Greek culture and Greek mythology. And that's really what Paul is addressing here is those who claim to communicate with the gods, so to speak, and mm -hmm. cast spells and give potions and those type of things. Yep. Hope that helps a little bit. We thank you, Walter, for your call. We've got uh, Muriel in uh, Florida. Muriel, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor Ross and Pastor Bachelor. It's my first time calling and getting on. Let me be quick. Um, I was reading... Exodus 9-1 about Moses going to Pharaoh and asking him to let my people go so that they may worship me. Mm -hmm. I've been just kind of trying to understand what is the difference. And then different versions say, serve me. And I'm just kind of boggled by the difference between worship and praise. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, there you could certainly do both at the same time. Uh, but there is probably a distinction you can make between worship and praise. You know, worship is something that can also be done very quietly. But praise, it's hard to do praise quietly. Praise means you are articulating your appreciation for the virtues of a person or God. You know, we're talking about praising God in this context. And you, you can, they say that the way that you teach uh, children is sometimes through, you know, it can be praise or punishment. You know, you, you discourage the bad behavior. You encourage by praise the good behavior. You, you say, that was really good. I'm so proud of you. You did a wonderful job. And they just brighten up when they hear those words of encouragement and praise. But that must be articulated. Whereas worship, you can get on your knees quietly and just, uh, you know, adore God and, and talk to the Lord and you'd be worshiping him. Um, so what do you think, Pastor Ross? Yeah, I agree. I think worship also carries with it the idea of obedience, 
when the first angel's message says, fear God, give glory to him, worship him that made the heavens, mm-hmm. the earth, the sea. It's not just praise and adoration. That's definitely part of it. But if worship is, spo- is to be genuine, it needs to be accompanied with obedience. Yeah. And so we worship God by obeying him, by doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. That is an aspect of worship. Praise is, uh, as you said, it's vocalizing. Usually we praise you can praise individually, but usually in a in a group setting, a church, we'll mm-hmm. sing praises to the Lord. We'll sing hymns. So that would be part of worship for sure, but yep. a, a little bit of a different emphasis. It says to obey is better than sacrifice. That's right. So, yeah. so worship involves obedience. Thank you, Muriel. We're glad you got through, and we hope it's not the last time you call. We've got Venice listening. Uh, f- Venice, welcome to the program. Hi. My question is, I received the Holy Spirit, and I'm walking with God. Why do I need to ask for a refilling of the Holy Spirit every day? All right. I thought he'd be walking with me all the time. That's a good question. Um, You know, I remember hearing about a man who was married to his wife for 35 years, and she said, you never tell me that you love me anymore. And he said, well, I told you when I married you, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. But she wanted to hear it more often. You know, Jesus said when you say the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, that sounds like you're not asking for monthly bread. So walking with the Lord is denying yourself. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. And then the Lord tells us, if you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? The word there, ask, is an ongoing verb. We're to continue asking him. So as we need food every day, as we need fellowship with God every day, we are inviting for God the Spirit to be in us all the time. And you see, in the disciples' experience, they prayed in Acts chapter 2, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you go to Acts chapter 4, it says the place where they were assembled, they prayed, and it was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit again. And look at all the times it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. There's, you know, waves of the Holy Spirit that come into people's lives. So I'd say keep praying. You know, we have a book. It's called Life in the Spirit. It talks Mm -hmm. about the Holy Spirit, the need of the Holy Spirit. We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number again is 800-835-6747. And again, the book is called Life in the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. And we'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. We've got uh, Anthony listening in Pennsylvania. Anthony, welcome to the program. You're on the air. Thank you very much, pastors. Good evening. God bless you guys. Evening. Thank you for calling. Okay. Revelation 21.1. And it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Mm-hmm. My question is, what does it mean when it says there's no more sea? Does that mean there's no more, there's no water in heaven? Okay, great question. Of course, it's not telling us there's no water because you read a little later that the river of God, this river of life flows from the throne of God. You also read about that in Ezekiel. It talks about the river proceeds from the temple. And so wherever you got water running, it's going to run to something. And uh, we just believe that in the new earth, uh, you're not going to have the salt water that you have now. Before the flood in the days of Noah, I believe that the earth was covered with water that you could drink. And the flood broke up the earth and these great salt 
deposits in the earth were mixed with the water, making it briny. It's interesting, in Peru, Pastor Ross, they've got in Lake Titicaca, which is, I forget, it's got to be like 14,000 feet high, they got sharks. Mm -hmm. And they're freshwater sharks. And they think that, you know, when there's a great upheaval in the world, that a lot of these sharks that were in, in this inland area got pushed up and they survived. I mean, they certainly didn't swim 14,000 feet up a creek. And uh, the whole world at one time was covered with fresh water. So when it says there's no more sea in Revelation, there's no more of the briny, salty ocean that you cannot drink that burns your eyes. But there will be lakes, and it's going to be a great, great lake probably out there uh, somewhere in the New Earth. And, of course, back in Bible times, uh, sea was a terrible separation. So here you have John. He's on the island of Patmos. The ones that he loved is in Ephesus. Well, there's a sea separating him from the ones he loved. And, of course, when somebody would board a ship and head out to sea, <laughs> well, you might not see them again. Yeah. But in the earth made new, there's going to be no separation between friends and loved ones. We're not going to be separated by oceans or seas. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely going to be bodies of water, as you mentioned, Pastor Doug. And I think it's going to be just, oh, well, we know it's going to be so much better than anything we have here on this earth. Yeah. The Bible says, I has not seen, nor ear uh, heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things that God is preparing for those that love him. So beautiful, Absolutely. beautiful place that God's preparing. Thanks for your call. We've got, uh, let's see, Colin in, um, is it New Mexico or uh, Maine? Maine? I think it's Maine. Colin, Maine, welcome. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. Hi, we got about two minutes. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for taking my call. My question is in regards to the small but interesting book of Second John. Um, right in the beginning, John, Second uh, John, verse one, it says, "To the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth," uh, which is strong language right off the bat. There, I'm wondering if that's a specific individual uh, that John is referring to, or is that to be interpreted uh, symbolically uh, for that book of Second John? I'll yeah. Okay. Hey, thank you so much. Good question, Colin. You know, I do believe that he's talking about when he says to the elect lady and her children, that's talking about the church. Church is called the bride of Christ. And you can read about um, the woman in Revelation. John wrote, you know, Revelation chapter 12. That woman in chapter 12 is clothed with the sun, the moon and the stars is the bride of Christ. And so he's addressing this letter to the church in this district. And, um, uh, he goes on to say, your elect sister greets you when he closes the letter. And so uh, let me see here. The children of your elect sister, and that's verse 13, greet you. So he's writing from one church and its children to another church and its children. And he's using this symbolic language. Absolutely. The church is described as being the bride of Christ. Yep. We're going to be going off the air with our satellite friends that are listening to uh, Bible Answers Live. We have a few more moments with everyone else, so stay tuned because we come back and what we do is we take Bible questions that have come in via the internet and we do it as rapid fire as we can to cover as many as we can. And so uh, God bless those who are listening on satellite. God willing, we'll be back with you again next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Okay, we're back. We're, we've got a few Bible questions. Pastor Ross, it came in online, and let's see how many of them we can cover. Okay, here we go. Question one. Why do some people call Jesus Joshua? 
Well, the way you would say Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yahshua. And so some people think, well, it's important to try and pronounce it in its original uh, accent. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with speaking a name in your own language. It's always fun for me when I travel to other countries and they try to say Douglas, which is a pretty English or Scottish name. And they call me everything from duck to dog <laughs> to, you know, because some people can't wrap their tongue around it. And so, uh, you know, if you say Jesus in Spanish, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. If you say it in Greek, it's going to be Hisu. In English, it's Jesus. Um, you know, some people feel like, well, but I want to say it the way that Mary said it to Jesus when he was in his manger. So they say Yahshua. Okay. All right. Next question that we have, it says, since um, we're judged by based upon what we know, wouldn't it be better for people just not to know anything about the Bible? <laughs> That's right. Someone said ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss, but it's not very smart. Uh, you know, um, you're not only responsible for what you know, you're responsible for what you have an opportunity to know. I believe it says in the book of Hosea chapter 4, and if you read verse 6, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, that doesn't sound fair to destroy them for lack of knowledge, but he goes on and says, because you've rejected knowledge, I will reject you. So friends, if you have an opportunity to know truth, God wants us to learn. He doesn't want us to live in darkness. And yes, when you do know, you're more accountable. But don't stay in the darkness. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That's right. Another question. It says, uh, what do we know about Enoch apart from him being taken to heaven and not seeing death? Well, it tells us Enoch walked with God. A matter of fact, after he had his son Methuselah, it tells us he walked with God because he understood the love of the Father and the Son. The book of Jude tells us Enoch was a preacher of righteousness who said the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on the ungodly. And so, um, uh, yeah, I think he was a preacher of righteousness that helped Noah in preparing for the uh, warning people about the coming flood. Absolutely. So he serves as a type of those who will be translated to heaven when Jesus comes a second time. That's right. It's interesting. It says that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And he went up. And he went up. Yeah. He's going to get the rest. Hey, friends, we are out of time. We appreciate your questions. Don't forget, go to amazingfacts.org. You can find out so much more about the ministry. We'll be back and study next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.